Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, and welcome to Archive Sleuth, the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfau, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. This is episode two of the story of Mary Blandy and the patricidal poisoning. If you haven't already done so, I recommend you pause here and go back and listen to episode one first. By the end of the last episode, we had left Mary at a crossroads. Over the first six months of 1751, she had received regular gifts of pebbles and white powder from her absent fiancé. This powder she surreptitiously fed to her father, Francis, by stirring it into his cups of tea. Francis Blandy was sick, worsening month by month. But a couple of his servants, after unwittingly drinking his leftover tea, had fallen ill as well. Mary now feared that someone would connect the dots and uncover her as the poisoner. She had two choices. To stop here and let her father recover and live, or to kill him as quickly as possible. Mary chose the latter path. Her motivation for wanting to rid herself of an affectionate father was that he was refusing to let her marry the aforementioned fiancé, a certain charming yet penniless Captain Cranston. Cranston had proposed to Mary, not at all coincidentally, after hearing that she was worth a whopping £10,000. The grounds for Francis's refusal? The fact that Cranston was already married. Mary, however, was resolute. Married or not, she was in love, and she would have her man. Unsure how to proceed, in July she wrote a letter to her beloved, telling him that stirring the powder into tea wasn't working. Cranston, who was evidently the brains behind this operation, told Mary to mix the powder into a thicker substance, such as water gruel, and to increase the dose, so that it would take effect more quickly. Things were moving too slowly for Cranston's liking. To encourage Mary to get a move on, in a follow-up letter he told her that his mother had employed workmen to fit up an apartment for her at his noble family's home of Lennell House. The implication was clear. As soon as Mary had ditched her parental shackles, she could join Cranston in Scotland, 
With the prize of living with a mother-in-law before her eyes, Mary lost little time in seizing her opportunity. On the 3rd of August, 1751, a Saturday, the maid Susanna Gunnell was busy in the kitchen, cooking up a large pan of water gruel for Francis Blandy. She made enough to last him several days, and stored the leftovers in the pantry. On the Monday morning, the 5th, Mary slipped into the pantry and poured a double dose of her white powder into the gruel, stirring the pan well to completely hide the white powder in the mix. She then left the pantry and went to the laundry, where Susanna and Betty the maids were busy at their work. Apropos of nothing, Mary told the maids that she had just been in the pantry and eaten some of the oatmeal from the bottom of the gruel pan. She liked eating oatmeal, she told them. That you have just snuck yourself a bit of, let's face it now, quite bland food, seems an odd confession for a grown woman to make. Even odder is the notion that the need to share her clandestine snack was burning such a hole in her consciousness that she just had to seek out the maids right then and there to tell them. Most odd, though, as far as the maids were concerned, is the fact that, only a few weeks earlier, Mary had told Betty that she never ate oatmeal, as it was prejudicial to her health. Later on that Monday, Mary was lingering in the kitchen when the gruel pan was taken from the pantry to serve up her father's dinner. Seeing the pan appear, she took charge. She stirred the pan again, examined the spoon, and rubbed some of the gruel between her fingers. Finally satisfied, she ordered the gruel to be sent up. Francis became violently ill after eating this meal, collapsing with sharp stomach pains and vomiting profusely. The next morning, Tuesday 6th, Francis was still ill, so the local apothecary, a Mr Norton, was sent for. Francis complained to him of severe abdominal pains, for which Norton prescribed a physic, but did not, it seems, make a guess as to the cause. That evening, Mary ordered the same gruel for her father, and this time carried it upstairs herself. Her compliant father allowed Mary to feed him, but he wasn't able to even finish this meal before becoming desperately ill again. With Francis consumed in a fit of vomiting, no one fought to clear away the unfinished bowl of gruel that night. It was retrieved the next morning by Betty. As she carried it back downstairs, she bumped into Susanna and Anne Emmett, two fellow servants who had both only recently recovered from illnesses after drinking from Francis's teacups. "'You used to be fond of water gruel,' said Susanna to Anne, on seeing the bowl. "'Here is a very fine mess my master left last night.' and I believe it will do you good. For Anne, it was once bitten, never shy. Maybe hunger overrode the memory of what happened the last time she finished off Francis's leftovers. For Anne took the bowl, sat down on a kitchen bench, and gladly tucked in. She had only swallowed a few mouthfuls when she started up, dropped the bowl, and ran outside to the wash house, where she vomited uncontrollably. After a half hour or so of this, Susanna led her back into the house to be by the fire. Anne sat there for another half hour, still vomiting and retching, until she looked so bad that Susanna feared she was close to death. At this point, with the master and one of his servants seriously ill, Susanna's suspicions were aroused. Later that same day, the Wednesday, Mary ordered that yet more gruel from the same pan be sent up for her father's meal. Susanna refused. It had gone stale, she said, and she had better make a fresh batch. Mary protested. Cooking fresh gruel would take Susanna away from her other work. But Susanna insisted. This is pure speculation on my part, 
but I have a feeling Susanna was merely finding excuses. She had, after all, made a large batch of gruel purposefully to last several days. Once Mary had left the kitchen, Susanna went to the pantry. She took out the pan containing the old gruel. On emptying it, she found a mysterious white powder had collected at the bottom of the pan. She showed the pan to Betty, saying she did not remember ever seeing oatmeal that white before. Betty agreed, saying the settlement looked as white as flour. Susanna carried the pan outside to more closely examine the contents in daylight. Putting her finger into the oatmeal, she found the white substance to be gritty. White and gritty, she recollected from my buried memory, were common attributes of poison. Sharp-minded Susanna realised the evidence had to be protected from destruction, so she snuck away from the house and hurried the pan, still containing the powder, to the neighbouring house. Here lived the Blandy's friend, Mrs Mountenay. Mrs Mountenay, apparently unfazed at having a maid appear on her doorstep cradling a gruel pan, agreed to keep the evidence safe. She also summoned the apothecary, Mr Norton, to come and inspect the powder. Mr Norton, who was still trying to treat Francis, was not a little alarmed to see this white powder. He agreed it was most likely poison, but he was unable on the spot to identify it, so he asked Mrs Mountenay to hold on to the pan until an expert could be summoned. Susanna returned to the Blandy's house, fully convinced now that Francis was being poisoned by Mary, and that poor Anne was collateral damage. Unsure, though, of how best to act on this information, Susanna kept her discoveries to herself. She did not accost Mary, or speak one word on the subject to Francis. Finally, two days later, Mary's uncle, Mr Stevens, visited the house. To Mr Stevens, Susanna finally confided her suspicions, and Mr Stevens it was who urged her to speak to Francis. And so, on the morning of Saturday, the 10th of August, Susanna went upstairs, sat down beside Francis's bed, and gently broke the news that the household servants and Mr Norton believed his illness had been caused by his own daughter adding poison into his food. Francis Blandy's response to this bombshell is a remarkable testament to the forgiveness and love that a parent holds for their child. Poor lovesick girl, he said, what will not a woman do for the man she loves? As far as Francis was concerned, Cranston was the real culprit. I remember, Francis told Susanna, he has talked learnedly of poisons. Susanna agreed that Mary had most likely received the poison from Cranston, but ultimately it was Mary who fed it to him, and so Susanna urged Francis to take away Mary's keys and papers and allow her pockets to be searched. Francis refused. I never in all my life read a letter that came to my daughter from any person, he said. Even now, even when betrayed in the most cruel, incomprehensible way by his own and only daughter, Francis refused to abandon the, for the time, liberal principles by which he had parented her. Her right to non-interference from her father was paramount to him over his own right to know the full truth of why he was ill. He instead resolved to get the truth from her directly. After his morning's conversation with Susanna, Francis felt sufficiently strong to rouse himself from bed and go down to the parlour for breakfast. Mary and Mr Littleton, the clerk, were already seated. Mary poured out a cup of tea for her father. Francis took a small sip and declared that it tasted very bad. Mary swore the tea was made as usual, 
upon which Francis gave his daughter a hard look. Mary, startled, burst into tears and ran from the room. After a few minutes, she had managed to compose herself sufficiently to return to the parlour. But upon entering, Littleton told her that Francis had thrown away the tea, an announcement which caused her to scurry off crying again. Francis now went looking for his daughter, chucking her down in the kitchen. Molly, he said to her, I had like to have been poisoned twenty years ago, and now I find I shall die by poison at last. Mary knew what he was referring to. When she was a child, her father had been to a local coffee house with two friends, during which visit they were poisoned. Of the three, only Francis survived, but now fate had caught up with him at last. Hardening yourself to the task of murdering your own father is one thing. Having your dying father look you straight in the eye and tell you he knows you have murdered him is an altogether different matter. Alarmed and distressed, Mary did not stay to defend herself. She fled from her father's sight and ran upstairs to her bedchamber. There she gathered together Cranston's letters and the remaining powder, and hurried with them back downstairs to the only room where a fire was burning that August day. She threw everything into the flames. Once more, Mary had allowed her emotions to overrule her prudence. The first rule in plotting a crime is surely be inconspicuous. In a house full of servants, there are eyes and ears everywhere. Unbeknownst to Mary, as she stood by the fire, watching the letters of her beloved twist into ash, she was herself being watched by Susanna and Betty. As soon as Mary left the room, the maids entered. They raked back the coals and discovered one piece of folded paper which had not yet been burned. On the paper were written the words, Powder to clean the pebbles, and inside survived a small quantity of the same white gritty powder Susanna had found in the gruel pan. Later that same Saturday, Mr. Norton told Mary that her father's life was in danger, and that it was time to call in the expertise of a physician. Mary sent to Reading for a Dr. Addington. Dr. Addington would attend on Francis every day thereafter until his death. He was a meticulous man of science, and his testimony at the later trial provides a startlingly vivid account of his patient's illness. Among Francis Blandy's plethora of agonising symptoms, he experienced a very painful burning and pricking in his tongue, throat, stomach and bowels, vomiting and purging, a swollen belly, and prickings and pain in every internal and external part of his body, which he compared to an infinite number of needles darting him all at once. He was also experiencing cold sweats, restlessness, bloody stools, a swollen tongue, an inflamed throat, a low trembling pulse, a yellow complexion, and finally, but unsurprisingly, following this long catalogue of woes, he was suffering from anxiety. By Sunday, Francis was finding it difficult to speak or swallow any liquid. As the days dragged on, he complained more and more of the pain in his bowels and of painful oozing ulcers. This was a slow, agonising way to die. The powder was effectively devouring Francis from the inside out. And what did Mary feel on seeing the torments that she had caused her father to suffer? Well, by the Sunday, she had recovered from her wobble of the previous day, and although her composure would crack again as her father neared death, for the physician's first visit, she successfully maintained a mask of unassuming innocence. Dr. Addington quickly deduced that Francis had been poisoned, 
and, as one would, he first went to the patient's nearest relative to confide his diagnosis. Dr. Addington asked Mary whether her father had lately given offence to either of his servants, his clients, or any other person. Mary categorically replied it was impossible that her father could have been poisoned, as he was at peace with the world, and all the world was at peace with him. Instead, she told the physician that her father had recently suffered from colic and heartburn, and in her opinion, he was just suffering another such episode now, which would surely soon pass. This emphatic denial of the mere possibility that her father had been poisoned, and her attempt to misdirect the doctor, came, let us not forget, after Francis had already implicitly accused her of poisoning him, and after Mary had tried to destroy the powder. Dr. Addington may have been puzzled by Mary's forceful rejection of his diagnosis, but all soon became clear to him. As he left the house later that morning, he was quietly intercepted by Susanna, who handed him the piece of paper she and Betty had saved from the flames. A quick conference with Dr. Norton also brought the ghoul pot powder to his attention. Unluckily for Mary, her surviving powder had now fallen into the hands of an enthusiastic man of modern science. Dr. Addington took the powder home and set about trying to identify it by undertaking scrupulous experiments. He studied its texture. He submerged it in ice-cold water. He threw it on a red-hot iron. He boiled a small quantity in water, then filtered the mixture into five equal parts, into each of which he added a tincture of a different chemical liquid to observe the results. He repeated all these experiments with poison of the same hue and texture bought from his local druggist. This was the age of enlightenment, the age of reason, and a time when John Locke's influence stretched long in the form of empiricism. Addington embodied the modern man of science, and his meticulous experiments with the powder, as well as his examinations of Francis Blandy's body, are a fascinating early example of how rigorous scientific methods were applied in a criminal case. Dr. Addington's experiments left no room for doubt. The powder Francis had consumed was white arsenic. Meanwhile, back in the Blandy household, with all the strands of evidence coming together, Mary was now suspect number one, and must have sensed the shifting mood towards her. Nonetheless, by her own misguided steps, she continued to build her own gallows. Somehow, and fair play to him for doing so, Francis managed to leave the house on the Sunday morning to attend church. He must have known this was the last time he ever could. Mary chose not to help her father, and instead stayed at home. Here she took advantage of his absence to write a quick, urgent note to Cranston. Dear Willie, it read, My father is so bad that I have only time to tell you that if you do not hear from me soon again, don't be frightened. I am better myself. Lest any accident should happen to your letters, take care what you write. My sincere compliments. I am ever yours. Mary was not exactly a master of cryptography or indeed subterfuge. For rather than nipping out to post the letter off herself, she handed it, as was her usual habit, to the clerk, Mr. Littleton, to be sealed and addressed. Yes, that is correct. Knowing full well she was under suspicion, Mary blithely handed over a piece of incriminating evidence to another person. Littleton, who must have been as befuddled as I am by this move, did not post the letter. Instead, he opened it, read it, transcribed it, and then shared the contents with his employer. Francis Blandy, on being presented with yet further evidence of his daughter's guilt, once more merely responded, Poor lovesick girl, 
what will not a woman do for the man she loves? This was becoming something of a catchphrase. For the next day, Monday, when Dr. Addington, fresh from his experiments, asked Francis who he believed had poisoned him, Francis replied, with tears in his eyes and a forced smile, A poor lovesick girl. I forgive her. Far from resenting, disowning, or hating his daughter, Francis felt only pity and a wish to forgive Mary for having felt the need to kill him. That, dear listeners, is parental love. And it wasn't just empty words. Mary had been barred entry to her father's room since the previous day, but on Monday morning she was allowed in, on her father's insistence. Susanna remained in the room throughout the conversation, and the scene she later recalled would fit perfectly in the highly emotional sentimental novels that were in vogue at this time. Mary knelt by her father's bedside. At first she feigned innocence, but then abruptly crumbled, begging his forgiveness and pleading with him not to curse her. Francis forgave Mary, berated Susanna for daring to accuse Mary of his poisoning, warned Mary she should hate Cranston, and concluded by blessing Mary and praying to God to bless her and amend her life. Mary cried that his words were swords to her heart, and on her father's urging, she then left the room before she could say anything in front of Susanna that might incriminate her further. It was the last time father and daughter ever saw each other. Francis's love for Mary had held steadfast until the end. What a pity, then, that she squandered his last advice as soon as she left the room. On her way downstairs, she passed the maid Betty, and stopped to confess that she had indeed put the powder in her father's gruel. In a fit of repentance, she cried that half her fortune wouldn't make amends to Betty and Susanna for their honesty to her father. With Mary's guilt now beyond doubt, that evening she was confined to her room, her keys, papers and any instruments with which she could hurt herself or another person were confiscated, and a guard was placed over her. Mary was locked in for the next two days, in a state of great emotional agitation of body and mind. This agitation, in the opinion of the observant Dr. Addington, appeared to arise more from the apprehension of unhappy consequences to herself than from a tender and hearty concern for her father. After ten days of miserable suffering, on the afternoon of Wednesday, August 14th, 1751, Francis Blandy died. Mary's agitation instantly dissipated, replaced by calm practicality. That very same evening, she offered a manservant £500 to help her escape the house. When he refused, she offered Betty Binfield 25 guineas to accompany her in a post-chase to London. Betty emphatically refused, and on seeing how shocked she was at the request, Mary altered tack. She immediately put a smile upon her face, and claimed she was only joking. This misjudged attempt at levity by the daughter and chief suspect, hours after her father's death, did nothing to endear her to the maid. Betty sat up with Mary throughout the night, and reported later that Mary, who stayed awake until 1am, showed not the least sorrow, compassion or remorse upon her father's account. Despite Mary broadcasting her desire to flee the house, she was left temporarily unsupervised the next morning, and promptly scarpered. She did not get very far. She had barely walked a couple of hundred yards to Henley Bridge, 
when a mob of the townspeople, riled up by the rumours of her father's murder, swarmed around her. Mary picked up the pace, and was forced to take shelter in the Angel Public House on the riverbank, a pub which, incidentally, for anyone keen to take a tour of the landmarks of this tale, still operates under the same name on the same spot today. While under siege in the pub, Mary fell into conversation with a Mr. and Mrs. Lane. What will happen to me, she asked them. She would have to face the consequences if found guilty of murder at trial, she was told. Upon hearing the cold truth, Mary stamped her foot and cried, Oh, that damned villain! She then paused before continuing, But why should I blame him? For I am more to blame than he, for I gave it him, and knew the consequence. Mary was extricated from the angel by a local acquaintance, Mr. Richard Fisher. Fisher elbowed his way through the mob and persuaded Mary to come home in a closed post-chaise he had secured to carry her away safely. Once back at the house, Fisher urged Mary to find and save any letters she had from Cranston that would prove his guilt, but of course, Mary had already burned them. Dear Mr. Fisher, Mary cried, what have I done? I had letters that would have hanged that villain, but I have burnt them. My honour to that villain has brought me to my destruction. Shortly thereafter, Mary was put in irons and transported to Oxford Castle Jail to await trial. As the household servants watched her being carted away to the distant city, it must have seemed like an open and shut case. Mary had confessed. She had destroyed any evidence that her fiancé was complicit. Mary would surely hang. But Mary was not going to surrender her life without a fight. She was to face trial. And as her carriage rattled along the turnpike road to Oxford, Mary was already resolved. She would plead not guilty. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. The story of Mary Blandy will conclude with episode 3. Please do subscribe to Archive Sleuth wherever you get your podcasts, so that you don't miss the next chapter of this tale. In the meantime, if you enjoyed listening, please be sure to spread the word to your friends and family. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated and produced by me, Georgina Asfau. The music you heard was... Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod, Relent by Kevin MacLeod, and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod. The online archive resources Internet Archive, the British Newspaper Archive, and the Welcome Collection were used in the research of this episode. Full details of sources used can be found in the show notes.